Welcome to Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. I have one friend who likes to say, it is easier to take the people out of Egypt than it is to take Egypt out of the people. For him, Egypt is a symbol of empire, and the story of the Exodus is not just about people getting physically out of Egypt, but when you consider the people's grumbling about wanting to go back to Egypt where they remembered not having to worry about food, it is also a story about getting Egypt, the empire, out of their heads, out of their thinking, decolonizing their minds. It is easier to get the people out of Egypt than it is to get Egypt out of the people. But I have another friend whose family is from Egypt. He says he's not interested in getting Egypt out of his head. For him, Egypt is not an empire, but his family's homeland. He still has family there and has gone back for extended time. Both of my friends know each other, and in fact, they are good friends of each other and work together on important matters of biblical theology and justice. Their friendly tension about how to understand Egypt as a symbol of empire or a real place with real people who have hopes and dreams and fears, just like we all do. It reminds me of the complicated tradition in the Hebrew scriptures and Jewish tradition of how to view other nations, especially enemy nations, which is a tension that helps to shape the Gospel of Matthew as well. Egypt, for the most part, is one of the two arch-villains of the Hebrew Bible, the other being Babylon, with Assyria running a close third. But there is a story in the Talmud about the Exodus that imagines a conflict within God, a conflict in God's own heart, concerning the fate of the Egyptian army that drowns in the sea trying to chase the Israelites as they are escaping out of Egypt. According to this story, on seeing the drowning Egyptians, the angels were about to break into song when God silenced them, declaring, How dare you sing for joy when my creatures are dying? But it's not just the Talmud. The Torah itself is conflicted if we read it closely. Back in episode 1, when I talked about what I call trickster texts, I pointed out that at the end of Genesis, in chapter 47, verses 13 to 26, we read that the Israelite hero Joseph exploited the disaster of a seven-year famine to enrich the Pharaoh and make all the people of Egypt his slaves. Verses 20 to 21 read, So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. All the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe upon them. And the land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made slaves of them, from one end of Egypt to the other. The story of Joseph and his brothers brings to a close the book of Genesis. The next book opens with a situation in which their descendants have been made slaves in Egypt. The irony is thick. If we read these texts closely and go straight from the end of Genesis into Exodus. 
In other words, some clever scribes must have written this story as a critique of Israelite pride and nationalism. I think a lot of Genesis is like that. The text was written or redacted this way because Israel must not think of itself only as a poor victim, innocent of any wrongdoing. God's prophets always called on Israel to check its nationalism and own up to its own oppression of others. The story in Matthew takes place at a time when Israel is an oppressed people under the occupation of yet another empire. Now, an oppressed people need to protect their traditions and draw deep down into their own heritage to survive. The story of Matthew does that. This story in no way tries to discard its Jewish heritage, but rather roots the ideals of the new society in Israelite law and tradition, even depicting Jesus as someone who is zealous for this tradition, who wears the fringe on his garment that signifies zeal for the Torah. But ultimately, the new society is to be transnational, transethnic, and so exclusive nationalism cannot be a part of it. There is a stream of visionary thinking in the Hebrew Bible which imagines a new transnational society. And it is this fully Israelite vision that Jesus promotes in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus in Matthew stands firmly in the Israelite prophetic tradition, declaring the time of fulfillment for this vision for a transnational, transethnic, new society of justice and peace for everyone. With that in mind, I think we can understand better our text for this episode. My name is Bert Newton, and this is episode 41 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. Let's read Matthew 16, verses 5 through 12. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch out and beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They said to one another, It is because we have brought no bread. And becoming aware of it, Jesus said, You have little faith. Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not perceive? Do you still not remember the five loaves for the five thousand and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand and how many baskets you gathered? How could you fail to perceive that I was not speaking about bread? Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he had not told them to beware of the yeast of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So the disciples continue their learning. Notice that the passage starts out with the disciples misunderstanding Jesus, but then understanding him in the end. This has been happening ever since chapter 13. In chapter 13, Jesus trained them with seven kingdom parables, parables about the nature of the new society, and at the end of that teaching, Jesus declared them 
to be scribes trained for the new society because they understood. But that did not actually complete the disciples' education. As it turns out, the disciples have continued learning, often not understanding some parabolic teaching or comment of Jesus, requiring Jesus to explain it to them. In this passage, he doesn't actually explain his parabolic statement in explicit terms. Rather, he gives a little review quiz about the mass feedings. And I'll come back to that quiz in a minute. And he calls his disciples, you of little faith. Now that's actually one word in Greek, you of little faith. A friend of mine with whom I used to read through this gospel in Greek would say, little faithers. Jesus calls them little faithers. Contrasting again with the great faith of the Canaanite woman in the last chapter and the centurion in chapter 8. The disciples don't understand, and they have a little faith. Faith and understanding seem to be linked. They have forgotten or doubted this new reality of an abundant economy of sharing. They think Jesus is making a snarky comment about their forgetting to bring bread with them. They have already forgotten that when Jesus sent them out to the towns to proclaim the good news of the new society back in chapter 10, he told them to take nothing with them because they would receive food from the people among whom they traveled. They would depend on the economy of sharing, the economy of mutual aid. Then he demonstrated the abundance of this new economy when they shared the bread and fish with the large crowds twice. And these feedings recalled the lessons of the manna and quail stories of the Exodus. But now they think he's angry with them for not bringing bread. They don't understand. Their misunderstanding proceeds from their lack of faith in the abundance of the new society. But Jesus gives them some hints by reminding them of the mass feedings, and then they understand. They understand that he's warning them about the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. But what is this teaching? As I mentioned in the last episode, Pharisees and Sadducees were normally competitors in the halls of power in Jerusalem. For them to be grouped together in this chapter of Matthew indicates that the establishment groups in Jerusalem are circling their wagons, making alliances with each other to oppose this new threat from the movement that is forming around Jesus. Their teaching is the ideology of the powers that be in Jerusalem, which are wittingly or unwittingly collaborating with Rome. Now, many in the Sanhedrin, the ruling council in Jerusalem, would have understood themselves as faithful leaders and defenders of Israel. But their leader, the chief priest, was appointed by Rome. And in the uprising of 66, Many of that class eventually joined the Romans in putting down the rebellion. So the teaching that Jesus is warning them about is the teaching of the wealthy and powerful interests in Jerusalem. The ideology of both major parties, both the Pharisees and the Sadducees. As I mentioned in the last episode, the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that the Pharisees had a following among the common people while the Sadducees were more popular among the upper classes. 
Josephus states this difference in very stark terms, putting the Sadducees in a negative light and probably overstating the popularity of the Pharisees because he himself, Josephus, was a Pharisee. In contrast to the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees, Jesus reminds his disciples of the lessons they have learned, the lessons that he has been teaching them through word and deed. The little review of the mass feedings that Jesus conducts with the disciples seems to focus on the numbers. He says, Do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand and how many baskets you gathered? In episode 39, I described how the symbolism of the numbers seems to reflect that the first feeding takes place in Israelite territory and that the second feeding takes place in Gentile territory or maybe in the border area between Gentile and Jewish territory, but the crowds that come up the mountain seem to be Gentile crowds, the nations that stream up the mountains as in the prophetic texts. So Jesus may be emphasizing that the symbolism of these numbers stands in opposition to the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. In other words, even though there is a strong tendency among the establishment parties to collaborate with Rome, understandable given their desire to survive, the ideology of the Pharisees and Sadducees is nonetheless nationalist and exclusive, whereas the movement that Jesus is leading seeks to be a transnationalist, inclusive movement. For many who are listening to this podcast, we could just leave it there, and that would be no problem. However, in biblical scholarship, there is a lot of concern about how Jews, especially Pharisees, who are commonly understood to be the forerunners of modern Judaism, are talked about in the New Testament. Because negative interpretations of Jews or Jewish groups in the New Testament have fueled historic anti-Semitism, which has resulted in horrific persecution of Jews, most notably the pogroms in Europe, culminating with the Holocaust. And very recently, we have seen a resurgence of anti-Jewishness in the West, including two synagogue mass shootings in the United States. So I want to pause and look at this assertion by Jesus and Matthew that the two major political parties in Jerusalem are nationalist and exclusive, because this is a very negative portrayal of them. There are several things that we need to consider. Number one, Jesus and his movement in this story are Jewish. So any criticism by Jesus of the establishment in Israel is an internal critique in the same way that many of us critique our own governments and political establishment groups or parties. Number two, I have made the argument in this podcast series that the author of Matthew was likely a Pharisee who joined the Jesus movement as a number of Pharisees seem to have done. So in the Gospel of Matthew, the criticism of the Pharisees, the major opposition group to Jesus in the story, is not only an internal critique by virtue of coming from a Jewish source, but even by virtue of coming from a Pharisaic source. Number three, there is quite a bit of nationalism and exclusivism in the ancient canon of Israel's literature. So it would not be unreasonable 
to assume that such an attitude would have been held by the Pharisees and Sadducees. But the ideology of exclusivism is not uniform in the Hebrew Bible. There are different points of view in different texts of the Hebrew Bible, and there seems to be somewhat of a debate about these things. Some texts are highly inclusive, such as Ezekiel 47, 21-23, which reads, You shall divide this land among you according to the tribes of Israel. You shall allot it as an inheritance for yourselves and for the aliens who reside among you and have begotten children among you. They shall be to you as citizens of Israel. With you they shall be allotted an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. In whatever tribe aliens reside, there you shall assign them their inheritance, says the Lord God. This text proclaims a strong, emphatic inclusion of Gentile foreigners as equal citizens deserving equal land allotments. It's quite astounding and would be quite radical in most of our modern societies, especially in the United States. But other texts are highly exclusive, such as the books of Ezra and Nehemiah or Deuteronomy 23, which excludes from the assembly of Yahweh not just specific Gentile nations, but also eunuchs and those born out of wedlock, or Leviticus 21, which excludes people with disabilities. So Jesus seems to be taking a side in this debate. He is siding with the more inclusive texts and voices. Number five, nationalism is typical of many people, groups, and nations, including the one I live in here in the 21st century. In the United States, both major parties consistently use nationalist rhetoric and speak about the United States as being the greatest nation on earth. In fact, the greatest nation ever. And this comes across very poorly to the rest of the world. Although, Many other nations say similar things. So, if there were strong voices of nationalism and exclusivism in Israel, that would make Israel a typical nation. And we must not forget, of course, as I've said, that there were counter voices. Although Matthew's Jesus characterizes the Pharisees as being exclusivist, this portrayal may be a caricature. Many scholars believe that it is a caricature. Matthew is polemicizing against his own group with broad brushstrokes, the way citizens of the United States, such as myself, sometimes polemicize against the U.S. with broad brushstrokes. For instance, we say that the U.S. is racist and imperialist. Well, yes, it is. But there are also many of us, many of us here, who speak out against these things. You get the idea. Reality is often more complicated than our rhetoric would indicate to someone not familiar with the actual situation. My concern here is that we don't scapegoat ancient Jews that are portrayed in the New Testament as somehow worse than us or our people. We should see them as typical of people. 
and those who have power and privilege would have been typical of people with power and privilege. The critique of them in Matthew is a critique of power and privilege, not a critique of anything distinctly or uniquely Jewish. By reminding them of the feedings of the 5,000 and 4,000 and reviewing the numbers with them, Jesus tells them to beware of the teaching, the ideology of both major parties in the halls of power in Jerusalem. Both are nationalist and exclusivist, while at the same time collaborating with Rome. That is the lesson that we should take from this passage and apply to our own situation. While we may prefer one party over the other in our own society, that should not blind us to the pervasive similarities that characterize their rhetoric and our political system and our society. My name is Bert Newton. The music for this episode has been provided by Bob Nolte and David Martin. Please share this podcast with your friends and your enemies and everyone in between. You can support this podcast through PayPal. Just send the donation to subversivewisdom at gmail.com. For some of you in the show notes, especially if you're listening through Buzzsprout, in the show notes there's actually a link you can just click for support. A big thanks to all who have supported this podcast. Uh, You can also email questions and comments and notes of encouragement and secret hopes of liberation that the Holy Spirit has whispered in your ear to be shouted from the rooftops. You can email all of that to subversivewisdom at gmail.com. This has been episode 41 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. (laughs) 